So Philippians chapter 1, we're going to read a few verses here and there. That's the last sermon. And I want to trace the title of the, the, the sermon is A Christ Pursuing or A Christ Hunting Church. And what I want to trace is through the whole four chapters that the main theme of this letter is to know and love Christ more and more. And so if you can, would you stand please? Philippians chapter 1, starting verse 1. Paul and Timothy is slaves of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I can look in chapter 1 still. Verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. You can be seated. Let's beg the Lord's mercy. Lord, we, we fully recognize that apart from You, we are nothing and we can do nothing. This is clearly a supernatural activity. So I pray you to help me, help me to be faithful, help me to be clear, and help the congregation to be faithful, examining all that is preached in light of your word. Your word is the standard here, so help us. Thank you for allowing us to study this beautiful letter. Thank you for helping us to understand and grasp the meaning of these words and to see your beauty. And today is not different. We ask you once again to help us. Pray your blessing upon other churches here in Salem area. We pray that your kingdom would come. They would conquer people from the kingdom of darkness and bring them into your kingdom that has a marvelous light called Jesus. Be magnified. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. Amen. What does it mean to know Christ? What does it mean to be known by Christ? So many people say that they know Jesus, that they know God. So many people. Oh, I know Christ. I was baptized. Have been going to church. I know Jesus. I served in the mission field for years. What does it look like in the life of someone who truly knows Jesus? What does it look like in the life of someone who is truly known by God? One of the most frightening words are not found in the Old Testament, but it's actually found in the New Testament. One of the most terrifying words of the whole Bible is not found in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament. It's in Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew chapter 7, the meek and humble Lord Jesus says, Not everyone, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, 
Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never, never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Many, many will say, Lord, Lord, that's a, a, a double appellation of affection. Lord, Lord, as if they know Jesus intimately. Look at what we did for you. I was baptized when I was twelve. Attend the church all my life. And the Lord is saying, What? I never knew you. Wait a second. Isn't Jesus God? And if He's God, isn't He omniscient? Doesn't He know everybody? How can He say, I never knew you? I don't know you. Is He omniscient? Is He God? Is He not? What's going on here? See, that's the problem we have when you try to understand to know as we think in English. Usually when you think about knowing something, it's always cognitive, intellectual. The primary understanding, I'm not saying that's the only one, but the primary understanding of knowing throughout these scriptures is actually covenantal, relational. Throughout the Bible, the knowledge of God, that means to be known by God and to know God, is primarily a covenantal relationship. And you can see this, for example, in Genesis chapter 4. Now Adam knew his wife, Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain. No matter how much intellect you have, doesn't matter how much you know about procreation, You cannot make a baby with that type of knowledge. There must be a covenantal, relational knowledge, intimate relationship. The same thing we see in verse 17. Cain, what? Knew his wife. And she conceived and bore Enoch. For example, in Genesis eighteen nineteen. We read, for I have, the ESV says, for I have chosen him related to Abraham. Actually, the Hebrew word yada means to know. I know him. But it's because it's so inseparable. The knowledge of God with his love, with his choice. The ESV rightly has, I have chosen. And that's what we see, for example, in Romans chapter 8. Paul says to the Christians in Rome, for those whom he what? foreknew. Does that mean foresight? Does that mean just intellect knowledge? No. It means a covenantal, relational love. For those whom he beforehand, before time, set his affection and his covenantal purposes upon. He says, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. And we see that because in Jeremiah chapter 31, as Jeremiah is speaking about the new covenant, one of the most glorious things about this new covenant, if not the most glorious thing, is that all the members of the new covenant will do a know the Lord. 
The days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Judah and the house of Israel. And then he goes on to say what this new covenant will look like. And no longer shall each one in the community of God's people teach his neighbor and teach his brother, say, Know the Lord. Enter in a covenant relationship with the Lord. No, because all the members of the covenant community will already be in covenant, knowing the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. And he explains how this knowledge is. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. To be known by God and to know God implies a covenantal, loving relationship. To be known by God is to be the object of His electing love and grace. To know God is to respond to His electing love in loyalty, holiness, and obedience. That's what that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, 3, But if anyone loves God, he's what? If anyone loves God, he's what? Known by God. God has entered into a covenantal relationship. And that's why this person now loves God. And that's what we are made for. To know God. To be in a covenantal relationship. This loving intimate relationship with the Lord. That's why Jesus remade us. He saved us. He made us a new creation. Going back before the fall so we can dwell with God and know Him in a covenantal relationship. It's fascinating how He defines eternal life. Jesus says, and this is eternal life. Streets of gold in heaven. No more disease. No more sickness. No. This is eternal life that they may know. Is the head knowledge that he's talking about? No. A covenantal knowledge, intimate relationship that they may know you, the Father, and Jesus Christ. That's eternal life to be in a relationship full of love and commitment and loyalty throughout all eternity, with the triune God. That's eternal life. Going back pre-fall, because that's how the first man was created for. To have that intimate relationship with his Creator. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, is a wonderful book. He says, what were we made for? He says, to know God. What aim should we set ourselves in life? To know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? Knowledge of God. What is the best thing in, the, in life? Bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else? The knowledge of God. Not, that's not head knowledge. Covenantal, loving relationship with the Lord. Amen? So, we must adopt a lifestyle that is relentless in pursuing to know God more and more. To love Him more and more. A mediocre, lukewarm pursuit of Christ will lead you nowhere but hell. We must be zealous in pursuing Him just like He was zealous in pursuing us. And that's what I believe that Paul is doing throughout the letter to the Philippians. 
He wants His friends to imitate Him in the pursuit of Christ. Hunting Jesus down. And that's what I strongly believe. That's one of the main, if not the major, purpose of this letter. And we see that by how the letter begins and ends. From the beginning to the end. The Alpha and the Omega of this letter has an emphasis on Jesus Christ. So Paul opens the letter talk about being a slave of Christ Jesus to the saints in Christ Jesus and then grace and peace from the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he finishes the letter by quoting whom? The name of Jesus Christ once again. So in chapter 4, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So we see, and then you can walk through the whole letter. And I encourage you, not this afternoon, but maybe this evening or sometime this week, to go through the letter of Philippians and count how many times you find the name Lord Jesus Christ. One scholar, he helps you. He says, the name is Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ, Lord Savior. Occur 51 times in the 104 verses of the epistle. But then I encourage you to go and find the references to He, His, Him. That's also referring to Jesus. Huh. So you see that the major emphasis of this letter is the name. It's the name of a person. And who is the person? Yes, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. And probably that's Paul's farewell. He doesn't know if he's going to live or die. And he's writing this letter to this church whom he loves. And yes, he, 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 does, he does not know about the future, but he knows one thing. He wants his brothers and sisters in Philippi to have their eyes on whom? In Christ Jesus. That's why we walk through this letter and it's a repetition of the name Jesus Christ, Lord. Amen? And I believe, I strongly believe that we also just like the Philippians, we desperately need to have our eyes on Christ Jesus. We are being bombarded with all sorts of things, all sorts of bad news, all sorts of evil rulers. And it's so tempting for us to take our eyes out of the one who truly reigns in love and majesty and with righteousness. So, my prayer is that as we walk through this letter, just like the Philippians, our eyes will be in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, we see Christ from the beginning. We're going to do Christ from the beginning, Christ to the end. So, look at chapter 1, verse 1. And that's how Paul opens his letter. And he says, Paul and Timothy is slaves of Christ Jesus. And here he places his own identity and the identity of Jesus. First he calls Jesus what? Christ, the Christ. What does he mean, Christ? Some people think that Christ is Jesus' last name. Because you always talk about Jesus Christ as if that was his last name. No, actually, Christ is a title. That's the Greek Christos that derives from the Hebrew Messiah. The Anointed One. He is the hope of Israel. He is the whole hope of the Old Testament. The, a king would come. And this king would not only be a king, but he would be a priest. And he would deliver God's people 
and bring them into God's presence once again. And that's what Paul is saying. He is the fulfillment. But not only that, Paul identifies himself as what? A slave. And here's important. Necessarily, if you have a slave, you must have a lord, a master, a lord. So, by implication, Paul is describing Jesus as what? The Lord Jesus Christ, or the Lord Christ Jesus, by calling himself a slave. Every slave has a master, and we are all slaves. That's what the Bible tells us. We are either slaves of Christ and righteousness, or slaves of Satan and unrighteousness. There is no middle term. There is nobody who is free. We are all slaves, either to Christ or to Satan and sin. So Paul is being letting us know here that this Jesus whom he serves is his Lord. That's in chapter 1. But in chapter 2, as we move to chapter 2 of Philippians, now he's going to describe, he's going to paint a beautiful picture of how this Jesus became the Lord. And that's in chapter 2, and you guys know now, verses 5 through 11. The beautiful painting that Paul is performing of Jesus ascending and becoming the Lord of the universe. So in Philippians chapter 2, we read, starting verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, this fronel, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but entered himself by taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, here we have the great contrast, the majestic contrast. We see Jesus humbling himself, Jesus taking the form of his slave, Jesus going to the cross, and now we have God the Father performing the acts of exaltation. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord. And that's what Paul is telling us. Here is the Lord Jesus, how he became the Lord of the universe. Now, for the first time, He ascends into heaven with a human nature. He had always been Lord of the universe without a human body as a, the triune God. But now, for the first time, He takes into heaven His body as the perfect Savior of mankind. And He's declared, He receives this title of honor, Lord. And Paul says, uh, this Lord is conquering. Knees are bowing. Tongues are confessing. And that's exactly what happened to Paul. This Lord came and conquered him. And that's all we see in chapter 3. So if in chapter 2, Paul describes the Lordship of Jesus, in chapter 3, the Lordship is verified by his own testimony. That's when Paul gives his testimony. He talks about his pedigree, how before Christ he had all this status. Do you remember? Circumcised on this day from the tribe of Benjamin. A Pharisee. 
Oh, a persecutor of the church. But then he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Not only in the past I counted, but now present. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of what? Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So that's what He's saying. Once Jesus took Him captive, all His past became like garbage, dog food. Do you remember what he's talking about? The, the context about beware of the dogs. Those false teachers. And he says, all the works of the flesh I give to them as dog food. They can all eat that garbage in light of what I have achieved in Christ Jesus. The Lordship of Jesus over his life is all that matters. Look at verse 12. You look in your Bibles, chapter 3, verse 12. And then he is very clear here. He says, not that I have already obtained this. What? Gain Christ fully. Or I'm already mature. Have achieved this goal. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has what? Do you remember this word? Laid hold. He took hold of me. That's a violent word used for hunting, fighting in war. And that's why I'm saying Jesus Christ took hold of me. And now I'm trying to take hold of Him. Paul became a trophy of mercy and grace of this sovereign Lord. Jesus Christ laid violent hands on Him, so to speak, forcefully arresting Him. Paul had been conquered by the invincible grace of the Lord. Here's a man who hated Jesus with all his guts. He hated Christ so much. If Christ was alive and he could see Jesus, he would kill Jesus. And yet, Jesus appears to him, and who is the strongest one? Christ Jesus. But Paul on his knees... Just like Philippians chapter 2, and out of his tongue, out of his mouth comes what? Do you remember Paul's first words? Who are you, Lord? I know I have been conquered. I'm your slave. Now show me who you are. F.F. Bruce, he beautifully, he writes the following. After Jesus' arrest and execution... Paul thought of him with repulsion, as one on whom, by the very nature of his death, the curse of God rested. Galatians 3.13 Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Those who proclaim such a person to be the Lord's anointed, as the disciples of Jesus did, were blasphemers. The well-being of Israel demanded their extinction. And, and quite apart from Paul's antipathy, to all that Jesus stood for, how can one enjoy a personal relationship with someone who has died and whom one never knew? When God chose on the Damascus road 
to reveal His Son to Paul, the Son of God, at the same time introduce Himself to Paul, I am Jesus, He said. Immediately, Paul was captivated by Him and became His slave for life. What shall I do, Lord? He asked Him. And his whole subsequent career was one of obedience to the answer that his question drew forth. He goes on and he says, In that moment, Paul knew himself to be loved by the Son of God, who, as he was to say, loved me and gave himself for me. At that moment, at that moment, with his knees on the ground, captivated, he discovered true love. In that moment, Paul knew himself to be loved by the Son of God. As he says to the Galatians, who loved me and gave himself for me, for him henceforth, the first and great commandment to love the Lord his God was honored in his love for Christ, the image of God. The man who loves God is known by God. A relationship of mutual knowledge and love was established there. And then between the apostle on earth and his exalted Lord, and to explore the fullness of his relationship was from now on Paul's inexhaustible joy. For him, in short, life was Christ. To love Christ, to know Christ, to gain Christ. Christ is the way and Christ is the prize. In that moment, when Jesus laid hold of him, you are mine. He realized that he was a slave of Christ. And he had the most loving Lord that he could ever have. So let me ask you, have you experienced this Jesus? Have you tasted that? Have you been taken hold by Jesus Christ? Has He hunted you down, put you on your knees, and made you confess, Who are you, Lord? Reveal yourself to me. Do you know Him as your Lord? One of the ways that I slave that a man became a slave was by capture, by conquest. In ancient times, one of the ways for you to become a slave was by conquest. And that's exactly what we see taking place. When Paul says that Christ Jesus seized him, took hold of him, he's talking about being taken captive as a slave of Christ. And that's why now we can go back to chapter 1 and understand. We know in chapter 2 that how Jesus became the Lord. In chapter 3, how this Lord took over Him. And now in chapter 1, we are mindful why Paul describes himself as a slave of Christ. Because he was conquered by Him. There was a conquest. The language of his slavery implies total devotion. There is a vast difference between being a slave and being a servant. There is a world of difference between being a slave and being a servant. Every slave is a servant, but not every servant is a slave. A servant has freedoms. A slave has no freedom. A servant gets paid. The slave doesn't get paid. 
This slave is the property of another. David Garland, as he's writing, as he's writing about Jesus' words, remember when Jesus says that shocking statement that the greatest in the kingdom should be the slave of all. David Garland, he says, the ears have dulled the shocking nature of this statement. Plato has calicles. Ask, how can anyone be happy when he's the slave of anyone else at all? The slave experienced civil death with no legal or human rights. Seneca characterized a slave as one who does not have the right to refuse. The slave's entire life was at the disposal of his lord and master. Are you a slave of Christ? Are you a slave of Christ? Have you been bought with His blood? That's what a slave of Christ means. Murray Harris, he has a wonderful book called The Slave of Christ. He says, At the heart of slavery, ancient and modern, are the ideas of total dependence, the forfeiture of autonomy, and the sense of belonging wholly to another. A slave lacked the power of refusal in the sense that he knew that if he refused to obey his master, he would suffer dire consequences. The same author, he goes on to describe slavery. He says that slavery was essentially a relation of human parasitism, a parasite. Huh, that makes sense. That's why Paul will say, for me to live is what? Christ. For me to live, there is no ease. For me to live equals Christ. Why? Because his whole being, his life is dependent upon Christ. He needs Christ to survive. Christ is his life. Oh, just like a slave, dependent completely upon his Lord. Yes, just like that. So Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. Paul's relationship with Christ was so close, so intimate, that his entire existence derived its meaning from his Lord. Let me ask you, where is the meaning of your life? your kids. So if the Lord take away your kids, you have no more meaning in life, in your degrees, in your job, in your spouse. Is that where you have the meaning of life? So what happens when the Lord takes away those things? You're going to go hunger yourself, commit suicide, because no longer purpose in life. You see, as slaves of Christ, our purpose is one, Christ Jesus. So Paul says, for to me, for to me to live is Christ. And that's so vital. Paul will say in chapter 3, and to know Christ Jesus what? My Lord. And there is something that's required for us to understand is that Christ died for me. 
Oh, yes, for you to bring you into His people. Yes, but first of all, I know my sheep, each one of them. And you must experience that. Christ died for me, for to me to live is Christ. That's what Martin Luther called Christus pro me, Christ for me. Luther said, it's never enough merely to know that Christ died or even, the, even why He died. Demons have doctrines of atonement. Demons know about the death of Jesus. Luther says, it's a heartfelt confidence in God that Christ's suffering and death pertain to you and should belong to you. For to me, to know Christ Jesus, my Lord. And there is a moment that doesn't matter if your spouse is living Christ, if your spouse is pursuing Christ, if your friends are pursuing Christ, if your siblings are pursuing Christ, even your pastors, you need to say, as for me to live is Christ. Because He died for me and He loved me. And that's what Paul is saying here. And that's why he continues. And there is so much in this letter and in Paul's letters about being in Christ. In Christ. Union with Jesus. For example, I also invite you to go through the letter of Philippians and underline every time that Paul says, In Christ, in Him. He says that the saints are in Christ. He says that His chains are in Christ. That He's trusting in the Lord. There is an encouragement in Christ. Have this mindset that's also in Christ. I hope in the Lord Jesus. I'm convincing the Lord Jesus. Therefore, welcome Him in the Lord. Finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It may be found in Him, through faith in Christ, the upward call of God in Christ. And you can just keep going. So many of these in Christ. Why? He no longer lives. Christ lives in Him and He lives in Christ. That's the whole point of this Words in Christ, in Him, everything is in Christ. For Paul, his chains are in Christ, his hope is in Christ, his encouragement is in Christ, his joy is in Christ, his rejoice is in Christ, his conviction is in Christ, his peace is in Christ, his exhortation for unity is in Christ. All is in Christ. Then read Acts chapter 17 here. For in Him, what? We live, we move, and have our being. That's exactly how Paul sees his life in Christ. Paul literally lives, moves, breathes in Christ Jesus. And he's setting the example for everyone who is in Christ. That must be our light. You see, Christianity is not a Sunday thing. It's not a one hour, two hour thing. You come here and then you're a Christian. Okay? That's very important. Christianity is a life. 
in Christ. For to me, to live equals Christ. And sometimes we start buying the idea that Christianity is one hour at church. So for one hour you behave like a saint and the rest of the week just like a demon. No, it's a Christian life. It's a lifestyle. What you watch, what you listen to, where you go, how you spend your time, all these things are derived from your union with Christ, being a slave of Christ. So, to be practical here, how can you apply all these things to the life of our church? First of all, and I'll be using some peas here so I can help you. You're going to see, first of all, our passion and priority must always be to pursue Christ. Our passion and priority in this church and in our lives must always be to pursue Christ. No competing agendas in this church and in our lives. Amen? Christ alone. I press on, Paul says. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Oh, brothers, I do not consider myself to have laid hold of it. But one thing, one thing I do. You see, when Jesus lays hold of us, there is no passivity. The sign of Christian maturity is not sitting on the corner as if you're a wise man, is scratching your face, thinking deeply. No, it's working, pursuing Christ, serving Him, loving, giving yourself. That's what Paul is telling us here. And he says, one thing, one thing I do. And that must be the motto of this church, the passion of this church. A one thing church. Amen? Grateful for the things that God has done in the past. Hallelujah. Yes. But you're not tapping our shoulders, tapping each other, say, wow, look at how much you have done. No, 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 no. Stretching forward. Stretching forward. One thing, church. Pursuing Christ. Grateful for what He has done in the past. But there is always more. Amen? Always more. Marching forward. Many battles to fight. Many souls to take hold for Christ. Much territory to advance for the kingdom of Jesus. By service, love, holiness, suffering. So, may the passion of our lives, individually and as we become this church, to be always Jesus Christ. To pursue Him. To know Him. Jesus in all that we do. May the preaching of this church always be Christ-centered. Amen? Not only our passion and priority, but here's the other P. A painful par partnership. That's what it implies in being a slave of Christ, in being in union with Christ. Paul says, for to me to live is Christ. And some, thing, some people think that to live is Christ is that Paul reached this utopian nirvana where he has no more suffering. No, for me to live is Christ. I'm in the heavens. No, actually, to live Christ is what? 
to suffer with Him. To suffer with Him. To live Christ was to be controlled or compelled by the love of Christ in such a way that Paul's life was marked by chains, afflictions, sufferings, struggles, beating, stonings, pain, privation, and danger of every sort. To be a slave of Christ and to be union with the one who suffers the most implies necessarily what? That we will suffer with Him. So Paul says, Oh, that I may know Him. You see this covenantal, this loving relationship with Him. That I may know Him. The power of His resurrection and what? The koinonia, the fellowship of His what? His sufferings. To know Christ, to be in an intimate relationship with Christ, is to fellowship with the whole Christ. Amen? Some, some people love parts of Christ. So you say, do you want to have a fellowship with the victorious Christ? Yes! Do you want to have fellowship with the loving Christ? Yes! Do you want to have fellowship with the blessed Christ? Yes! Do you want to have fellowship with happy Christ? Yes! Do you want to have fellowship with the suffering Christ? The crucified Christ? And the answer must be yes. I want to know Him. I want to know Him fully. Like you marry someone just for the good times. And then when the spouse gets sick, you walk away. Huh. That's no fellowship. That's no covenantal relationship. So, for the true Christian... This is the greatest privilege of all. To know Christ fully. And Paul says, For it has been grace to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also uh, suffer. Every single Christian has been gifted with saving faith and what? Uh, the blessing of Sharing his sufferings. Let us not. What is so easy to do is to say things. But when the dark clouds come, we run away and hide ourselves. No. No. Let us take hold of this truth. So when persecution and suffering come, we understand that's part of this privilege. Of not only believing in Him, but also what? Suffering for His sake. Amen? So, He must be the passion, priority. There is a painful partnership. And Christ Jesus is the power of this church. He is the power of this church. We are His slaves and He's our Lord and He empowers us to live holy lives. And I'm deriving from chapter 4, verse 13. And that's my own translation. Paul says, I overpower all such situations, referring to the plenty and abundance. Remember, hunger and being full. I overpower all such situations in Him who uh, 
empowers me. And now we see that Christianity is not just a system of philosophy. As if Christianity is just a system of thought. It's a powerful person. Empowering us to walk in holiness. Amen? And that's what the church must be. The church must be this theater where people can see the power of Christ in our lives. Empowering us to live lives completely different from the world. Being content with Christ. Being satisfied with Jesus. And He is our power. He is the source of our power to keep pursuing Him, to walk in holiness. Amen? Last one here. Our purpose. He must be the purpose of this church. And our purpose as a church is to know Christ. To pursue, to know Him more and more. So Paul says, chapter 3, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish, garbage, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own. And here, see, the surpassing worth of what? Knowing Christ or the knowledge of Christ. Remember, what type of knowledge that is? It's not just a head knowledge, but it's what? A covenantal, a loving relationship with Him. Gerald Hawthorne, he says, such knowledge involves more than acquisition of facts. It also involves loyalty, repentance, love, and service. Knowledge then is not primarily intellectual, but experiential. That's what he's saying here. There are so many people, there are some even in this church, that they know so much about Jesus. They know so much that they could go to any seminary all over the world and teach theology. Because they know so much about Christ. And yet they, don't, they, they know nothing of Jesus Himself. They don't know Christ. Sometimes when you're young or older, you have heroes and you know all about your hero. But there is a vast difference between knowing about Him and truly knowing Him. Having this person over to your house, opening your heart, receiving. And that's all we see right here. The treasure of all treasures. The purpose of our lives together is to pursue to know God through Christ. To love Him, to treasure Him, to be loyal to Him. So, indeed, Paul says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For Him all things were removed from me, and I count them as filthy garbage, in order that, in order that here's the engine behind Him, and He wants all of us to have this engine inside of us, driving us, in order that I may, what? Gain Christ. Wait a second, Paul. Have you, not, have you not already gained Christ? Is He not yours? If you're a Christian, have you not gained Christ? Yes. Have you gained Him fully? 
completely, exhaustively? No. No. There's always more of Christ. More of Christ you love, more of Christ you serve, more of Christ you suffer for, more of Christ you rejoice, more of the riches of Christ, more of Christ you sing, more of Christ people to be conquered is the gospel, more of Christ for us to grow into His likeness. So that must be the engine within this church. To gain Him more and more, to know Him more and more. Less of me, less of you, less of us, and more of whom? Christ Jesus. And finally, to finish, we saw Christ from the beginning, Christ to the end. And that's how the letter ends. He's the Alpha and the Omega. And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory. In whom? In Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in whom? In Christ Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your Spirit. And Paul truly wants us to imitate him in this love, in this passion, in this pursuit of Christ Jesus. One last quote, and then we finish. Gerald Hawthorne, he says, To say living is Christ is to say that for him life means Christ. Life is summed up in Christ. Life is filled up with, occupied with Christ. In the sense that everything that Paul does, his trust, loves, hopes, obeys, preaches, follows, and so on, is inspired by Christ and is done for Christ. Christ and Christ alone gives inspiration, direction, meaning, and purpose to the existence. Paul views his life in time as totally determined and controlled by his own love for and commitment to Christ. Overpowered by Christ on the Damascus road and overwhelmed by his majesty and love and goodness and forgiveness, Paul can see no reason for being except to be for Christ. To me, live is Christ. Everything. In Him, by Him, through Him, for Him, under Him. Amen? So, as we bring to conclusion, here's what we see throughout the letter. Paul is indwelt with the Spirit of Jesus Christ, chapter 118. He has the affections of Jesus Christ, chapter 118. His peace comes from Jesus Christ, chapter 1, verse 2. His chains are in Christ, 1.14. His joy is in the fact that Christ is proclaimed, 1.18. Life in Christ is fruitful labor for the church. His hope is that Christ will be magnified. His encouragement comes from Christ. His mind is Christ. Paul longs for the day of Christ. His hope is in Christ Jesus. His glory is in Christ Always considered as lost for the sake of Christ. His righteousness comes from Christ. He shares Christ's suffering. He waits for Christ Jesus. Christ guards his heart. He rejoices in the Lord Jesus. Christ is Jesus is his power. And Christ's riches supply all our needs. And one more that's not there. Even the greeting is in Christ Jesus. And that's why Paul says, For me to live is what? Christ. And may this be true of us as a church. The more we live Christ, the more we will see death as what? Gain. Do you know why you fear death? Because you love Christ too little. And you serve Him too little. That's the reason why we fear death. Because when Christ is our life, we see death as a slave that's just simply bringing us into the presence of the One who is our life. Amen? So, 
May Christ Jesus dwell richly in this church. May we all encourage one another in pursuing Christ, knowing Christ. May Christ Jesus be exalted in our singing, in our praying, in our preaching, in our fellowship, everything that we do. We will never, we will never regret or repent of seeking too much of Christ. Just the opposite. Father, we thank you for this wonderful letter. It's so majestic to sit under your teaching, under your word, and be comforted, be confronted, be challenged. Thank you for loving us and giving us your Son. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us conquering us, rescuing us from the kingdom of darkness. Oh, that our lives would be grounded in Christ. That our passion and priority will be Jesus. In our work, as we go to work during the week, that we will be thinking about Christ and loving Christ and thanking Christ. And yet in our homes, with our families, they would be thinking and speaking and singing about Christ Jesus. That this church would be overwhelmed with Jesus Christ because we must live in You, Lord. You are the source of life. And in You we have life and abundance. We have purpose for life. So thank You for saving us, conquering us, transferring us from the kingdom of darkness into Your kingdom. And Lord, those who are here who do not know You, I pray that You'd lay hands on them, conquer them, drag them to You, Lord. Put them on their knees right now and empower them to confess that You are Lord and there is no better Lord to serve than You. Help us to be a church of slaves, slaves of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.